Bible Biogs in 30 minutes. Through the Bible, one character at a time. Author, pastor and Bible teacher Mike Beaumont is in conversation with David Taverner. In this episode, we're going to be talking about Ezekiel. And this follows on from our last episode when we were talking about Jeremiah, who was destined to be a priest and had a very strong vision, a very strong calling. Is there any similarity between Jeremiah and Ezekiel? Well, absolutely. They were both destined to be priests. Jeremiah found he didn't end up becoming a priest because God broke him with a powerful word into his life. Ezekiel will also find that although he was destined to be a priest, having been born into a priestly family, he couldn't end up becoming a priest because God intervenes first through circumstances, but but then through an intervention of a vision. So the book of Ezekiel starts very specifically um, on July the 31st of my 30th year, while I was with the exiles beside the Kibar River in Babylon, and he goes on to give us the account of his call. So 31st of July, 593 BC. Where is Ezekiel? He's told us by the Kibar River in Babylon. What is a priest doing there? Well, we saw in a previous episode that when Babylon came against Judah and Jerusalem to conquer it, it actually sent people into exile in three phases. There'd been a first phase, uh, a second phase, and there would be a final deportation when everyone would go. Now, Ezekiel was taken into exile during that second deportation in 597 Mm -hmm. BC. So imagine this. Here's this guy who has spent his whole life knowing he's called to be a priest. He's a descendant of the priestly families from Levi and Aaron. He's been trained to be a priest. And now suddenly he's taken away from the one place where he can be a priest, which is Jerusalem and its temple. And he's now taken almost a thousand miles away to be exiled with God's people. And perhaps we can imagine how he must have felt because it's like his whole life has geared up for this. And now what, God? He's got no job to do. He's got no job to do, exactly. And it's at that moment when he's got no job to do that God suddenly breaks in with this incredible vision. And chapter one opens up the whole book with that vision. There he is by the river, and it tells us he he saw a windstorm coming. Nothing unusual about windstorms and sandstorms in that part of the world. I've experienced them myself. I was once coming in to land on a plane in Dubai, in the United Arab Emirates, and literally as we were coming in, I looked through the window and saw this windstorm, sandstorm, sweeping towards the airport, and the plane literally just landed before the airport closed. They happen instantly. Mm. So nothing unusual except as he looks at this sandstorm coming in, there's something unusual. And he starts to see flashing lightning. Well, okay, maybe it's just lightning. But then the more he looks, he suddenly starts to see 
fire in the middle of it. And, and then he's, there's what he calls as four living creatures that have got weird faces. One's got the face of a man, another of an ox, one of a lion, one of an eagle, and they've got wings. And, and he goes on <laughs> to great descriptions. And what he ends up seeing is nothing less than a vision of the throne of God with these powerful creatures there being part of this throne. And the key thing about this throne is that it has wheels. And as he puts it, wheels within wheels. I think we have to imagine a bit like a gyroscope mm -hmm. with like one wheel going this way and the other wheel going the other way, intersecting it. And he sees that this throne of God is dashing this way, then suddenly going the other way because of the wheels that are within the wheels. Quite weird. It's really weird. And the more he looks, the more he sees until eventually he realises he's seeing nothing less than the throne of God. And the chapter ends up with the words that this was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. It's like he, he can't put it into clear words, but he has had a vision of the throne of God. And the most important thing that he saw in this vision before we even go on to his call and what God said to him is that this throne had wheels. You see, Ezekiel had spent his whole life believing God had a throne. But where was the throne? It was above the cherubim, above the Ark of the Covenant, in the Holy of Holies, in the temple in Jerusalem. He knew where God's throne on earth was. It was in Jerusalem. And suddenly he sees that God's throne has got wheels. It's not fixed to Jerusalem. God's throne can go anywhere. God's throne can come even to them in exile in Babylon. And this is the start of Ezekiel's mind being opened up to understanding that God and his work is not just restricted to Jerusalem. He discovers that God has a mobile throne, a mobile throne, not a mobile <laughs> phone, though he may well have one of those <laughs> right. as well. In other words, God has gone with them. They may be in exile, but God has gone with them. God has gone with him. And therefore, the story is not over, even if they feel like it is. So even though they're a thousand miles or so from their homeland, God is still going to be speaking to them through Ezekiel. And, and, and what is his message then? Absolutely. And in chapter two, we get we get that call out of it. He's just so overwhelmed. He falls on the ground and, and he's told, son of man, stand on your feet and I will speak to you. And, and God says to him, you must speak my words to them. And at this point, he's commissioned as a prophet. But it's interesting, he gets similar words to Jeremiah, where Jeremiah was told, you'll speak and they won't listen. And Isaiah was told, you'll speak and they won't hear and understand. And Ezekiel is told that he's to speak God's message now as a prophet, whether they listen or not. Just keep on speaking. But they're not going to listen because they're a rebellious people. And so here, out of that vision, he's commissioned to be a prophet and to finally answer your question. I feel a bit like a politician at that point, taking a while to get there. <laughs> I knew you'd get there eventually. <laughs> the heart of the message that he's 
told to give. Remember, he's prophesying to Jews in exile after that second exile, but Jerusalem is still standing. The heart of his message is that Jerusalem is going to fall and Judah is going to be conquered and all of God's people will join them in exile. It's, it's not just us few who are here. God's judgment will surely come. So the first 24 chapters of his book are all about prophecies predicting the fall of Jerusalem, some of them through words and some of them through slightly weirder ways. So was that a message of hope then, in a sense, that there would be a future return to Jerusalem for the people? At this point in the first 24 chapters, there's little hope. It's pure judgment. It's a pure declaration that Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. The temple will be destroyed. His, his beloved temple, just imagine how painful that must have been for him mm. to declare that. His beloved temple was going to be destroyed. So throughout this first block, what we get is just prophecy after prophecy of, of judgment coming and prophecy um, not just through words, but through, well, frankly, some pretty weird stuff at times. Oh, right. Such as? Well, Ezekiel was a prophet who didn't simply speak out his prophecies. He he often acted them out and symbolized them. So in chapter four, he, he builds a little miniature model of Jerusalem. <laughs> Imagine building it with Lego bricks today. <laughs> Other bricks are available. And he acts out a siege of Jerusalem and shows it being destroyed. In, in chapter 12, God tells him um, to act out what will happen by packing his bag for a journey, a picture of how the Jews will have to pack their bags mm -hmm. and come into exile. In chapter 24 itself, there's a really painful moment where his wife dies and even the death of his wife God uses as a prophetic message and tells Ezekiel not, not to mourn for her death. Why? Because the judgment coming upon Jerusalem is just as inevitable. So he was, he, he was a bit of a weird character at times. <laughs> and I suppose after you'd had that vision in chapter one, it's, it, it's quite understandable. <laughs> so it was a mixture of both his message and his method that let people to think this is a crazy guy. <laughs> this is this is the guy standing on the street with his placards saying the end is nigh that people look at and think, man, you're a weirdo, as so often is thought today. This eccentricity came from God, not from just his sort of personality. Absolutely, though God clearly uses our personality. I think one of the things about when you read through all the prophets is you see how very different they were. They come from different backgrounds. Amos, a guy who looked after sheep and traded in sheep. Isaiah, a royal courtier. Ezekiel, a priest. They come from different backgrounds. They have different characters. They deliver their messages in different ways. And by the way, I think that has a message for today that if ever we feel we want to share a word that we feel God has given to us, we don't have to imitate anybody else. Just because Mrs. Jones begins her prophetic words in this way or waves her hands or shakes when she doesn't, doesn't, doesn't mean we have to. God used the character and the personality of each of these different people. So 
I suspect there was something slightly weird about Ezekiel, but clearly he does these things because God had told him to do them all. So he builds this city because God told him. He b cuts his hair off at one point and burns it, scatters it as a symbol of how Judah will be scattered because God told him. But, you know, God's very gracious. God knows who we are and what we're like. And in my experience, God doesn't ask us to do things that are so outside our comfort zone that we just find it impossible. Occasionally he pushes us, of course he does. So they weren't stunts then? Absolutely not. Each of these are preceded by God speaking to him. So, for example, in chapter 5, we actually read, Son of man, take a sharp sword and use it as a razor to shave your head and your beard and then weigh it and burn it. So it was in clear response to what God said. And I think all of them were... They're graphic pictures. It's like God is trying to grab the attention of his people, even there in exile, and, and say, don't you think this thing is going to pass quickly, right? There's even worse to come. The, the final judgment on Jerusalem and Judah will surely come, and they're all going to join us. So they are graphic ways of God trying to grab the attention of his people so that whether it's by word or, or by what they look at, they get this message that judgment is inevitable because of the endless sin of God's people. I'm keen just to explore with you a bit further a couple of those illustrations, demonstrations, if you like. There's one, I think, where Ezekiel is lying on his side day and night. Yes, he is told by God to lie on his side for 390 days. <laughs> Yeah, that's what I thought. 390 days. That's okay. You do the math. <laughs> it, it's a long time. And then he's told to turn on his other side for 40 days. Right. Now, again, this just looks weird, doesn't it? But you have to imagine the people are seeing this all the time. And all of these, whether it's the lying on the side or the shaving of the head or the, the building of a toy model, they're all designed to get people to think. Now, so often what they ended up doing was thinking, there goes the weirdo again. And they couldn't see beyond his weirdness. I have to confess in life sometimes, I've come across people who seem to have a genuine prophetic gifting. And do you know what? Sometimes they can be a little bit odd. And it's really easy to reject the message because they're a little bit odd rather than listening to the words that they're bringing. And people did this with Ezekiel. They rejected it because they thought he was just, well, a weirdo doing all these weird things. But the fact he laid there for 390 days and then 40 days, it's its like God is determined to get his message through mm. to people about what is about to happen. And that was happening in a very sort of public place, was it? He, you know, he, was, he would have been seen by the people. Yeah, absolutely. All of these are in very public places. Remember, this is in an exile community. And the difference between the exile of Israel by Assyria and the exile by Babylon of Judah was that the Israelites, the northern tribe, had been scattered across the whole empire, gone interspersed. But here, these Jews were kept in identifiable smaller communities. 
This was not the whole of the people. These first two exiles were were really Babylon's way of saying, now look, just you watch what will happen to you unless you conform. So it would have been a smallish community, identifiable, kept in an area. And so these are very public things that Ezekiel is doing. And I can't help but think at times, do you know what? He must have felt, what on earth am I doing this for? I can think in my own life at times where I've felt God has told me to do something and I think this is really stupid, God. And I have those internal wrestles. And yet, when I've stepped out and done what God said, I've always ended up saying, okay, you were right. But it must have been tough for him. And I don't think we should think of Ezekiel as a sort of Mr. Crazy who does all this weird stuff and doesn't even notice he's being weird. I think this cost him personally. And there were reasons for doing these things. One, for example, did he break a hole in the wall of his house and then climb through it? Yes, that was another one. You see, there are so many, I'm forgetting some of them. Um, And that was meant to symbolise what would have to happen to the people of Jerusalem, that when they were attacked by Babylon, they really would literally have to dig through their house walls to escape. Because in those days, very often, houses formed part of the walls. So here again is a really graphic picture, one that cost him, by the way, digging through the wall of his house. He'd have to go back and repair it eventually, wouldn't he? Hmm. So all of these, whether it's digging through the wall or lying on his side or making models of Jerusalem or packing his bags, each of them is meant to be God saying, look, this is going to happen because this is my inevitable judgment coming on decades, centuries of unfaithfulness, but there will be hope. I think we need to pause for a second and just say, weird or not, are there prophets today? Well, my answer would be, yes, I believe there are. Although I know some Christians might feel that these things faded out in New Testament times. Why these gifts of the Holy Spirit should fade out in New Testament times, I have no idea. Frankly, we have as much need for the supernatural intervention of God today, if not more so as they did. And I'm fascinated that in passages like, for example, in Ephesians, Paul talks about five gifts of apostle and prophet and pastor and teacher and evangelist being given for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry until the body of Christ is completely built up and mature. Now, that's only going to happen when Jesus returns. So, yes, these gifts, all of them, we accept quite comfortably the gift of the teacher or the evangelist. Why not the other gifts with it? They are all still needed for building up the body of Christ. And Paul's expectation in his letters was that these gifts would happen, that they would be real. Though, both in Old Testament and New Testament, uh, it's important to note that we're always told to test prophecy. We're, we're not to be glib about it, uh, that we are to, the term the New Testament uses, is to weigh prophecies. How do we weigh it? Well, I think first and foremost, is it scriptural? Is, is this Does this line up with what we know of God and who he is and how he works as revealed in his word? What about the character of the prophet who's brought? Is this a godly man or woman who's 
not perfect, but, but seeking to live this stuff out themselves. And when this person's given words before, have we seen them come? And of course, many words now are not just about what's going to happen in the future. Actually, one thing that's easy to forget is that really a very small proportion even of Old Testament prophecy was about the future. Most of Old Testament prophets' work was calling people back to live in line with God's word and God's covenant. Only a small percentage was about, and this is going to happen tomorrow or next year. And likewise, in New Testament times, much prophecy is about both calling us to live in line with God's word, but there's a a lovely line in one of Paul's letters in 1 Corinthians 14, 3, where Paul talks about the purpose of prophecy being edification, exhortation, and encouragement. And if you feel you've got a word or a picture from God that matches those, will it edify? Will it, will it build us up? Will it exhort us and say, yeah, keep going? Will it encourage us? Then it's a pretty safe word to bring. How easy is it to know... Who is a prophet? I think the New Testament differentiates between the gift of prophecy and someone who is a prophet. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14 and in chapter 12 and 14, two areas where he talks about it, he actually has this sentence, you can all prophesy. Wow. You can all prophesy. Well, yeah, Joel had promised that. Peter picked that up on the day of Pentecost said that God would pour out his spirit and his spirit would now be available for sons and daughters to prophesy and and young and old and even servants, even the lowest in their culture. So everyone can prophesy. Every Christian who has the spirit of Jesus can bring a word that will bring edification, exhortation, encouragement. But it seems in the New Testament that there were some who were called, just like Ezekiel was called, to the role of a prophet, who function much more regular in prophecy, who bring words that aren't just encouraging, but who at times bring words that are directional, that give shape. Acts 13 talks about while the elders at Antioch were praying and fasting, God spoke to them, presumably through the prophets, and said, set apart for me, Paul and Barnabas, to the work I've called you to. Later on in Acts, Agabus who's described as a prophet, will prophesy what's going to happen to Paul about how he's going to be taken captive. So there's the gift of prophesying that all of us can do. But from that, some will grow more and more in that gift to become those the church recognises as, yeah, this is really a prophetic person who brings words often that we as a church acknowledge I'm always wary of someone who sets themselves up as a prophet. I like to know that their church is saying, yeah, and we authenticate this person too. There are many well-known passages in Ezekiel. One springs to mind, the Valley of the Dry Bones. Another, dare I say, weird one. (laughs) What's that about? There are indeed some wonderful prophecies. Uh, And these come particularly in sort of the the final block. So his first block of teaching, remember we said, was about predicting the fall of Jerusalem. And then there'd been judgment sections in the middle about surrounding nations. But in the third block, which is sort of chapters 33 to 39, and then on to a final block from 40 onwards, these are prophecies that were delivered 
after the fall of Jerusalem in 586 BC. So it's now a done deal. Mm, it's happened. All that he said was going to happen has indeed happened. And it would be so easy for everyone to fall into despair and think, oh, my goodness, he was right after all. That's it. So in these final blocks of his prophecies, there is so much uh, that is encouraging and that now that false hope has been shattered, now he starts to give them true hope. And the true hope focuses around, well, we've messed up, but God. There's so many but gods in scripture. But God is going to come. So in chapter 34, there's a wonderful passage about shepherds and the sheep. Your shepherds, your leaders have messed up and led you into this mess. But God himself will come as a shepherd. And then in chapter 37, the one you just referred to, the valley of dry bones that, yes, seems so weird. He looks and he sees in a vision a valley that's full of bones. And they're not just dry bones. The text says that they were very dry. And as he looks in this vision, God says to him, son of man, one of the favorite titles that's used in Ezekiel and that Jesus will pick up. Son of man, can these bones live? And Ezekiel is pretty smart at this point. He says, um, you know, oh Lord. And God says to him, here's what I want you to do. I want you to prophesy over these dead bones and say, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. My breath's going to come into you and I'll make you live. And so Ezekiel prophesies to dead bones. Like, man, this is weird. <laughs> but as he prophesies, something happens. And the first thing he hears is a noise, a rattling. <laughs> the bones are rattling on the ground and then the bones come together. And as they come together, tendons and flesh come on them. Uh, uh, but there's still no breath. So they've been reformed into a body. And then God says, prophesy to these bodies, prophesy breath come into them and breath comes into them. Uh, and then these what were dead bones that have become dead bodies that are now live bodies are commanded to rise up and become an army of the Lord. And God says to him, Ezekiel, this is a picture of my people. They have so abandoned me that they are now simply like dead bones scattered in the valley. There can be no hope. Can these bones live? I don't know, Lord. <laughs> but what I'm going to do is I will so breathe on my people who are as good as dead bones and I will cause them to rise up and I'll cause them to go back to their home and I will give them another opportunity. And of course, there's still a very relevant message in that for us today because while at first level, it was a prophecy about what would happen to Judah, it's a word that can apply to Every Christian and every church in every situation, does our life, does our church, does our church in our nation feel like a, a bunch of dead bones? If we will begin to pray and speak God's word into them, can dry bones live? The answer of chapter 37 is absolutely they can live. God can come again. And with God, there can always be hope 
even for the churches in our own nation at this time. And in conclusion, we shouldn't then dismiss Ezekiel for being weird and wacky. If we dismissed everybody who's weird and wacky, the church would probably be a church of one, me. (laughs) God uses all sorts of people. Priests, prophets, shepherds, nomads, kings, ordinary people. And he used Ezekiel with all his character shapeliness. And the lovely thing that comes out from Ezekiel is, do you know what? We don't have to be like anybody else. All we have to be is who God is calling us to be in Jesus. With our character, with our shaping, with our loves and our passions. Yes, letting Jesus deal with the stuff that needs to go. But please, don't imitate anyone else. You really can be yourself. David Tavener was in conversation with Mike Beaumont, who's written about the people of the Bible throughout the Christian Basics Bible. Catch their conversations anytime on the UCB player or with your favorite podcast provider. Just search for Bible Biogs in 30 minutes.